Absalom said to Ahithophel, Give us your advice. What should we do? Ahithophel answered, Sleep with your father's concubines, whom he left to take care of the palace. Then all Israel will hear that you have made yourself obnoxious to your father, and the hands of everyone will, uh, with you will be more resolute. So they pitched a tent for Absalom on the roof, and he slept with his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. Now in those days, the advice Ahithophel gave was like that of one who inquires of God. That was how both David and Absalom regarded all of Ahithophel's advice. Ahithophel said to Absalom, I would choose 12,000 men and set out tonight in pursuit of David. I would attack him while he is weary and weak. I would strike him with terror and then all the people with him will flee. I would strike down only the king and bring all the people back to you. The death of the man you seek will mean the return of all. All the people will be unharmed. This plan seemed good to Absalom and to all the elders of Israel. But Absalom said, summon also Hushai the Archite so we can hear what he has to say as well. When Hushai came to him, Absalom said, Ahithophel has given this advice. Should we do what he says? If not, give us your opinion. Hushai replied to Absalom, The advice Ahithophel has given is not good this time. You know your father and his men? They are fighters, and as fierce as a wild bear robbed of her cubs. Besides, your father is an experienced fighter. He will not spend the night with the troops. Even now he is hidden in a cave or some other place. If he should attack your troops first, whoever hears about it will say, there's been a slaughter among the troops who follow Absalom. Then even the bravest soldier whose heart is like the heart of a lion will melt with fear. For all Israel knows that your father is a fighter and that those with him are brave. So I advise you, let all Israel, from Dan to Bathsheba, as numerous as the sand on the seashore, be gathered to you, with you yourself leading them into battle. Then we will attack him wherever he may be found, and we will fall on him as dew settles on the ground. Neither he nor any of his men will be left alive. If he withdraws into a city, then all Israel will bring ropes to that city, and we will drag it down to the valley until not so much as a pebble is left." Absalom and all the men of Israel said, The advice of Hushai the Archite is better than that of Ahithophel. For the Lord had determined to frustrate the good advice of Ahithophel in order to bring disaster on Absalom. Hushai told Zadok and Abiathar the priests, Ahithophel has advised Absalom and the elders of Israel to do such and such, but I have advised him to do so and so. Now send a message at once and tell David, do not spend the night at the fords in the wilderness. Cross over without fail, or the king and all his people with him will be swallowed up. Jonathan and Ahimaaz were staying at Enrogel. A female servant was to go and inform them, and they were to go and tell King David, for they could not risk being seen entering the city. But a young man saw them and told Absalom. So the two of them left at once and went to the house of a man in Baharim. He had a well in his courtyard and they climbed down into it. His wife took a covering and spread it out over the opening of the well and scattered grain over it. No one knew anything about it. When Absalom's men came to the woman at the house, they asked, Where is Ahimaaz and Jonathan? The woman answered them, They crossed over the brook. 
The men searched but found no one, so they returned to Jerusalem. After they had gone, the two climbed out of the well and went to inform King David. They said to him, Set out and cross the river at once. Ahithophel has advised such and such against you. So David and all the people with him set out and crossed the Jordan. By daybreak, no one was left who had not crossed the Jordan. When Ahithophel saw that his advice had not been followed, he saddled his donkey and set out for his house in his hometown. He put his house in order and then hanged himself. So he died and was buried in his father's tomb. Thanks, boss. Good morning, everyone. If we haven't met, my name's Ben. It's my joy to be uh, bringing us the Word of God this morning. Please do keep your Bibles open uh, from that uh, long passage from 2 Samuel 16. I'll lead us in prayer and we'll get stuck into it. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you speak to us in your Word. I uh, pray that uh, you'd work powerfully in us by your Spirit to help us uh, understand and take to heart what it is that uh, you'd have us learn from your uh, Scriptures this morning, that we might become more like our Lord and Saviour Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. As Jesus hung, dying on the cross, we're told, Matthew chapter 27, verse 46, that about three in the afternoon, he cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I suspect this is something fairly familiar to most, uh, if not all here. It uh, is known as the cry of dereliction. Uh, and it's the moment where, for the first and only time in all eternity, that the most perfect and loving relationship between God the Father and God the Son suffered the most dreadful rift beyond imagination. So much so that theologians speak of the Son as descending into hell on the cross. We reflect it poetically when we sing those words, how great the pain of searing loss, the father turns his face away. So deep and so profound is God's love that it was why we were still sinners that Christ underwent such hell for us. And yet when we give a few minutes thought to this momentous and absolutely foundational event, we can discover an alarming theological dilemma. We know that God is eternally unchanging. God's the same yesterday, today and forever. And we know that God is, uh, in essence, relational. He's God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. One God, Trinity in unity, unity in Trinity. And yet there was no heavenly answer to Jesus' cry of forsakenness if God the Father turned his face away from God the Son, hasn't there been some kind of division in the Trinity? If our understanding of what happened at the cross and our understanding of who God truly is, if they can't fit together, if they end up being mutually exclusive, then either God's not God or we're not saved. Now, of course, as I'm sure you'd guess, uh, they do fit together. The Father did turn his face away. He did forsake the Son, and yet the Trinity remained undivided. The question that as Christians, all of us would be very wise to have an answer for is how? How can that be the case? How did God remain undivided at the very point where the Son experienced true forsakenness from the Father? And would you believe a significant part of the answer 
has to do with what God's going to teach us from a series of events that took place about a thousand years before Jesus experienced that God-forsakenness of his cross. As we re-enter the saga of David's downfall in the second half of 2 Samuel, his son Absalom is in the process of forcefully taking over his throne and David and his men are therefore in exile. David has sent one of his loyal followers, that guy Hushai, to pretend to be an advisor to Absalom, but really as a servant for David. And when Hushai first meets Absalom as king, he deceives him, strangely enough, by speaking the truth. He deceives Absalom by telling the truth. And that's because he speaks true words, yes, but to ears so proud that they are unable to perceive. The truth. Uh, from verse 16, we read, Then Hushai the archite, David's confidant, went to Absalom and said to him, Long live the king! Long live the king! We know that Hushai only recognizes David as the king. But he also knows that it's not going to cross Absalom's mind to think that he's referring to anyone other than Absalom. And so Absalom wants to know why Hushai has changed signs. Verse 17, Absalom said to Hushai, so this is a love you show uh, your friend. If he's your friend, why didn't you go with him? See, Absalom doesn't ask, if David is your king, why didn't you go with him? It's just, if he's your friend, which shows us that when Absalom heard Hushai declaring, long live the king, he obviously assumed he meant him. How does Hushai, though, answer the question about why he hasn't sided with David, be it friend or king? And astoundingly, what does he do? He speaks the truth again. But again, Absalom mishears it on account of his pride. Verse 18, Hushai says to Absalom, no, and this no is really a no, I haven't abandoned David, but it gets heard as no, I was right to reject David. That's how Absalom hears it. Why? Well, continuing with verse 18, the one chosen by the Lord, by these people and by all the men of Israel, his I will be, and I will remain with him. Now, this makes Hushai the first person in the text to suggest that Absalom is chosen by the Lord, even though that's not what Hushai is actually suggesting. And that would give a very good reason for Hushai to have turned from David and started to follow Absalom. And then Hushai sweetens the deal by asking a rhetorical question to which Absalom would have assumed a very positive answer, whereas Hushai would have intended the negative answer. Uh, verse 19, and I'm using the, uh, the Holman translation because I think it gets it better. Furthermore, whom will I serve if not his son? As I served in your father's presence, I will also serve in yours. Translation, just as I served David in David's presence... So I will continue to serve David in your presence, Absalom. Now, at no point is Hushai actually dishonest. He simply banks on Absalom listening with proud rather than humble ears. Good lesson for us as we come to the word of God, isn't it? We have to listen with humble ears. In his loyalty to David, Hushai models what it means for a disciple, I think, to be shrewd as a snake whilst innocent as a dove. Absalom hadn't paid attention, obviously, to what Yahweh had made clear through the prophets. 
It's not the tall, handsome, and now eldest son that God automatically chooses. God doesn't look at the outward appearance, and he chooses not as man chooses, but in accordance with his own heart. If Absalom knew that, then perhaps he wouldn't have been so blind to Hushai's true, albeit very carefully chosen words. Nonetheless, now that Hushai's on board, Absalom needs to plan the next step. He turns to his main advisor, the guy who, who he got before him, who is on his side, Ahithophel. And Ahithophel's advice for the next step absolutely seals the rift between Absalom and David to the point of really almost no return. Uh, here's how it goes from verse 21. Ahithophel answered, Sleep with your father's concubines whom he left to take care of the palace. Then all Israel will hear that you have made yourself obnoxious to your father and the hands of everyone with you will be more resolute. So they pitched a tent for Absalom on the roof and he slept with his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. It's about the boldest, rub-it-in-your-face kind of way of emphatically saying to everyone, I'm the king and sucked in David, you're not. Obviously what happens here is such a mess of wrongness, it's hard to untangle. There's the, the power imbalance that reduces the, the concubines to sex objects. There's the breaking of the Levitical law in regard to who, who you can have sexual relations with. There's the fact it's so cold and calculated and actually serves the interests of Ahithophel as much as Absalom. For you see, if Absalom does something so in your face like this against David, it'll sever the relationship that there's really no, no choice now for Absalom to turn back. And that benefits Ahithophel. Because if Absalom, for whatever reason, did turn and put David back in power, let's just say Ahithophel might be out of a job, to put it mildly. But the really damning thing about this horrible event is that even though Ahithophel and Absalom are doing the horrible deed for their own sinful reasons, political reasons, it's also something that the Lord promised would happen. And it would happen as a consequence for David's abusive acts of murder and adultery that started on that same roof. Uh, many of you probably remember from back in chapter 12, of after David's great sin, the Lord had said, out of your own household, I'm going to bring calamity on you. Before your very eyes, I'll take your wives and give them to one who is close to you, and he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I'll do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. And so we must conclude that whilst evil is never ever the desire of God, it is nonetheless something that falls under his sovereign control, like all things, and is used in accordance with his plans, as it is here to devastating effect. And with that, we come to point three, for which I'm comfortable enough in my masculinity to have entitled Pride and Prejudice. In order to both show himself a valuable advisor and to help out David... Hushai relies on appealing to Absalom's pride. After hearing that Ahithophel really is a great advisor who happens to be prejudiced against David uh, and, uh, you know, advises on the basis of self-interest, we're told that Ahithophel advises Absalom to strike now while the iron's hot and kill only David 
and be assured that David's followers would then become his followers. God himself would later call that good advice. And chapter 17, verse 4, Ahithophel's plan seemed good to Absalom and his men. But there's this cool little proverb in the book of Proverbs, 1817, which I've always loved, and it says, in a lawsuit, a lawsuit, the first to speak seems right until someone comes forward and cross-examines. I wonder if you had that sense as it was read out. You know, Ahithophel's got a good idea, but then Hushai comes along and, oh, wow, his idea is way cooler. Ahithophel's advice was certainly good, but Absalom asked for Hushai's advice, and Hushai, being a brilliant strategist, comes up with a plan that both appeals to Absalom's pride, but also, his real motive, buys David much more time. Verse 7, Hushai replied to Absalom, the advice Ahithophel has given is not good this time. You know your father and his men, they are fighters and as fierce as a wild bear robbed of her cubs. Besides, your father is an experienced fighter, he will not spend the night with the troops. I.e., he's on the run, he's desperate, he's going to be like a cornered animal, you know, they're going to fight brutally into the death and without much concern, like the mama bear. And he's also a clever guy, so he's probably going to be hard to find. Continuing from verse 9, even now he's hidden in a cave or some other place. If it, he should attack your troops first, whoever hears about it will say, there has been a slaughter among the troops who follow Absalom. Then even the bravest soldier whose heart is like the heart of a lion will melt with fear, for all Israel knows that your father is a fighter and, and those with him are brave. In other words, Absalom, mate, your reputation is at risk. And if there's one thing you can always bank on when it comes to those who are proud and have narcissistic tendencies, as we're getting the impression that Absalom does, is that they're extremely overprotective of their reputation. And so now Hushai is then is perfectly positioned to give the glorious climax of his proposal, a proposal that makes Absalom the absolute star of the show. Verse 11, so I advise you, let all Israel, everyone's going to see you, mate, all Israel from Dan to Beersheba, as numerous as the sand of the seashore, be gathered to you, with you, yourself, leading them into battle. Then we'll attack him wherever he may be found and we will fall on him as dew settles on the ground. Neither he nor any of his men will be left alive. If he withdraws to a city, then all Israel being ropes to that city and will drag it down to the valley until not so much as a pebble is left. Not one stone upon the other. Sounds kind of like, you know, we'll destroy it like Jericho was once destroyed. The alarm bells should have been ringing at maximum volume when Hushai said that Absalom, will be leading all Israel into battle. I mean, by now they've got roughly, what, a million examples that have taught them that they need God to lead them into battle if they're going to succeed. Inquiring of the Lord, bringing the Ark of the Covenant, having the Lord go before them to rout their enemies. That's the way that David won his battles all the way up to this. Hushai's proposal, it's like it puts Absalom basically in the place of God. And if there's one thing you can bank on with a proud or a narcissistic person is that they're always predictable. They will always go for the option that they perceive as giving them 
a greater reputation with a greater audience. And so verse 14, Absalom and all the men of Israel said, the advice of Hushai the Archite is better than that of Ahithophel. But Ahithophel's prejudice and Absalom's pride and ignorance, they were the penultimate reason that Hushai's advice won the day. The ultimate reason, the final reason, is given for us in the second half of verse 14, where we're told, For the Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel, good counsel of Ahithophel, so that the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom. I've chosen the ESV there because it rightly reflects what's in the original, that the word Yahweh, God's name, which in our Bibles is L-O-R-D, occurs twice in this verse. And it's the only time in this whole section where we're told explicitly of God's intentions, which is why it's the key verse for our section. It's the one time where God comes to the foreground. The wording here corresponds with what David had prayed back in chapter 15 and verse 31. He had prayed, Lord, turn Ahithophel's counsel into foolishness. And then just a few verses after he prayed that, he, and he sent Hushai to serve, quote-unquote, Absalom, he said the purpose for that was that you, Hushai, will defeat for me the counsel of Ahithophel. And that is exactly what God is now saying his intention, the Lord's intention is here in verse 14. To put it simply... As David is being punished for his great sins, as he's being punished, even then the Lord is clearly and unambiguously listening to David. He's listening to his son. Remember that kings, David and his line are sons of God? The logic of the text shows emphatically that even as his chosen king is being punished, the Lord listens to his anointed, and of course always keeps his promises, though it has for David been to devastating effect thus far. David can undergo punishment for his sin and yet be listened to by God. And of course Jesus himself knew that when he underwent his punishment for sin, which of course in Jesus' case was not for his, but for ours, as he hung on the cross and cried out to the Father, who did forsake the Son, but precisely, what do, you, what do you know, because he listened to him. You see, though Jesus rightly dreaded the cup of God's holy wrath being poured out upon him, and unlike David, he didn't deserve it, he, he had no sin, he had nonetheless prayed to his Father beforehand, asking that his Father's will would be done. Jesus knew he was asking to be forsaken by God. And whilst in the midst of bearing punishment for your sin and mine, God the Father did listen to his Son precisely because he turned away from him and forsook him. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. The unity of the Trinity was shown as the Son cried out, Why have you forsaken me? 
Together, the Father, the Son and the Spirit were in agreement that God should forsake God such, this, such that sinners like you and like me might have the penalty for our sin removed. All right, everyone still awake this morning? Me too, good. I lost an hour of sleep. Last one, final point, the true people of God. David had put a chain of spies in place such that Hushai could get messages back to him. So (laughs) it's a bit of a chain, right? Hushai told the priests, Zadok and Abiathar, who in turn got a female servant to bring the message to Jonathan and Ahimaaz, who would in turn bring it to David, right? That's how you've got to do these things because, you know, you've got to keep it under the radar, right? So send the message to a bunch of spies. But around the time that Jonathan and Ahimaaz were uh, receiving the message from, from the female servant, somewhere around that time, they got seen by a young man who was obviously loyal to Absalom. Hence, they themselves temporarily had to go into hiding before they could get the message to, to David. And this little incident about how Jonathan and Ahimaaz had to go into hiding has been recorded for us I think so that you and I would be assured about who the real people of God are and what they are like, both at this point, but also more broadly uh, for us uh, generally. So from verse 18, it says, So the two of them, that is Jonathan and Ahimaaz, left at once and went to the house of a man in Baharim. He had a well in his courtyard and they climbed down into it. His wife, it's important that it's the wife, His wife took a covering and spread it out over the opening of the well and scattered grain over it. No one knew anything about it. When Absalom's men came to the woman at the house, they asked, Where are Ahimaaz and Jonathan? And the woman answered them, They crossed over the brook. The men searched but found no one, so they returned to Jerusalem. Now surely someone could probably yell this one out and tell me, right? Two spies serving serving the leader of Israel hidden by a woman who happens to live in a town, Baharim, that, what do you know, is located between Jerusalem and uh, Jericho. What should this remind us of? Someone yell it out. Rahab, spot on. And what happened to the people of Jericho who had sent people to search for the spies? What happened to the people of Jericho? Yeah, mushed. Not one pebble left on another, just like Ahithophel, uh, sorry, that Hushai had advised for Absalom, but really for David. You see, we've already been told that the Lord has ordained to bring disaster upon Absalom, and now we've been given a very strong hint that God will ensure that those who side with Absalom will also meet their demise, just like the people of Jericho did. In fact, the cards are already starting to fall by the end of today's section. The report does get delivered to David such that he retreats a little further, other side of the Jordan, just in case Ahithophel's advice was heeded, which of course it's not. And then verse 23, when Ahithophel saw that his advice had not been followed, he saddled his donkey and set out for his house in his hometown, put his house in order and then hanged himself. Who does this one remind you of? Judas, yeah, he backed back the wrong horse, stood against the Lord's anointed. 
Uh, and so he died and was buried in his father's tomb. And uh, by the way, if you didn't know this, hanging in the Levitical law of God, it's, 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 uh, it represents being cursed by God. The walls are already starting to crumble for those who are in the land but are not the true people of God. And they've had every warning. God had made it clear through his prophets time and again that you cannot stand against the Lord's anointed. Instead of opposing him, the only sensible course of action is to take refuge in him. And so, of course, the first logical implication that's basically the same in David's days as it is in ours is you've got to make sure you're following the leader that the Lord has actually chosen. Uh, you could have worked this out, by the way, just from listening to what the Lord had promised to David in, in 2 Samuel. It's like, when you rest with your fathers, I will raise up someone from your line. Well, David's still alive. That means it's impossible that Absalom could be chosen as king. You just listen to the prophets, you'll know who to side with, right? Now, I know most of us are siding with the one the Lord has chosen. In our case, of course, that's Jesus. But I don't know everyone in the room, it might be the case that you're someone who is yet to put your, your trust in Jesus. Uh, so I speak to you just momentarily. You see, God has shown the whole world absolutely and surely, more surely than he showed these people, he has showed us absolutely and surely that Jesus is the king, that he has chosen to rule over all people and all things. He's proven it by raising Jesus from the dead. And Jesus has already defeated the rival authorities and he has in fact ascended his throne. The only reason Jesus is holding off on the last cleanup is because he's just so patient and kind that he, he wants to give more people more time to repent. Just imagine for a minute, I, I don't know how this happened to me, I've got a weird imagination, right? But just imagine for a minute that David somehow had the miraculous power to, to raise dead people back to life, right? Of course he doesn't, but imagine he did. Once David inevitably gets back in power, which he will, imagine that, say, one of those two guys, right, Jonathan and him are us. Let's just say one of them died in the course of, of serving David, getting the message to him. Let's say it was a him us, right? Jonathan made it, gave the message to him us, died somewhere along the way. Now David's back in power. He finds out that a him us died in his service. What's David going to do? Oh, resurrect him. Come and enjoy the kingdom. What about Ahithophel, though? David sees him buried, cursed by God in his father's tomb. He worked against him. I think David's going to, might leave him where he is. If you're here and you don't yet side with Jesus, this isn't some philosophical pie in the sky sort of thing. This is reality. Jesus will at any moment, be it tonight or in a thousand years, but at any moment, he will return to judge the living and the dead. It's only those who recognize him as Lord now who will get to enjoy his kingdom for all eternity. The others he'll leave cursed by God. Lastly, for us, the church, be assured yet again that it always makes sense to suffer for, and I would add with, the one the Lord has chosen. It wouldn't have been easy being Hushai and having to be careful with your every word, knowing that getting found out would probably result in death. Although, funny, his experience is pretty normal for so many Christians, so many of our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world. They sort of walk a tightrope, knowing that they can get found out and that might mean death. 
And it wouldn't have been easy serving David in the wilderness, not knowing where it's going to lead you the next day, or whether you have to run this way or that, whether there's an army coming or not. And so it is with each and every Christian. None of us are immune to suffering as we follow the suffering servant who had no place to lay his head, who was persecuted and whose followers will also be persecuted. But you see, he himself, our king, Jesus, whom David gives a very pale foreshadowing of, he knows exactly what the suffering is like from any and every angle. He knows it. Jesus himself knows whatever it is that you and I go through. And as sure as he has been vindicated, which the whole world will soon recognise, well, so too we will be vindicated with him. As he was God-forsaken, so we shall never be God-forsaken. I just want to point out that even when it comes to death, those whose, whose suffering as, as Christians involves their death or the death of someone close to them, even then, it's, it's fascinating to know that, that another thing that Jesus was heard by his heavenly Father praying was in John 17, he says, I want all my followers to be with me where I am. Uh, when it comes to someone who's a follower of the Lord, should death befall them by persecution or just by you know unfortunate circumstance, illness, whatever, for the Christian, that's actually Jesus getting his prayer answered. He wants them to be with me where I am, he says. It's a wonderful comfort uh, this side of the final vindication of Jesus. Brothers and sisters, let me conclude in prayer. you got any questions or comments, you can write them in the Connect form. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for the true King, our, our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ, uh, your Son in the line of David, who suffered and even died and experienced God-forsakenness for sin. Not, of course, his own, uh, but, but for ours, and for the way that we... Uh, constantly fail you heavenly father we pray that um, you would enable us in the here and now while we wait for the big cleanup uh, to remain loyal to king jesus that you would give us the wisdom required to, to, to be shrewd and innocent in the way we speak and conduct ourselves uh, that we would look forward with rejoicing to what's on the other side of our present sufferings and that you would enable us to endure, knowing that uh, nothing ultimately thwarts the plans of the Lord's anointed. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.